mercy, a disposition to show kindness or compassion to an offender. So when you are guilty and you deserve to be punished in order for justice to be upheld, and then you are not punished, you are blessed. That is receiving mercy. Mercy is truly glorious. If you are to see God for who he is, you must see the mercy of God. Seeing the mercy of God is the key. This is the foundation to experiencing the deliverance, the hope, the healing, the transformation that you are so hungry for. You must see the mercy of God. Let us understand God's mercy and have these truths go deep into our souls as we read in Romans 15, reading verses 8 through 13. Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Powerful text. Allow me to give you the primary truth. This is the main idea from this portion of Scripture. It's that God is worthy of our worship first and foremost because of His mercy. And so you see here in this text, verse 9, it says we glorify God for His mercy. And then all these examples of praise God, rejoice in Him, praise Him, sing to Him, rejoice, worship Him. So God is worthy of our worship first and foremost, so primarily because of His mercy. And so throughout this series, we've We've been learning about seeing God, and we have been pondering how we become what we behold. This is important. This is foundational to understand how we experience transformation and how we become who God's called us to be, how you become that man, that woman that God has made you to be, is understand that we will become what we behold. And so we take on the character of whatever it is that has our focus. And so you are worshiping that which you are beholding. And we will always take on the character of what we worship. Which is why we must continue daily looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to our God who is magnificent and majestic and all-wise and all-powerful and good as we have considered throughout this series. 
And when we continue looking to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit then changes our hearts so that we will then naturally respond with lives marked by worship. Not just with our lips, but with our lives. So as we meditate on this text in Romans 15, 8 through 13, we're going to see exactly how the mercy of God impacts us and how this mercy of God to save sinners like us who are undeserving, who have offended God, who sin continuously, who our hearts are dark and evil, and we then can see the glory of God when he takes sinners who hate him and who have no interest in God, and he transforms us to white-hot worshipers whose hearts beat fast for Jesus and yearn for him and want to delight in his glory and want to display it to all. When that happens, it is only the work of God, and it's only through his spirit, and he gets all the glory through his mercy to save and transform sinners. And so God displays his glory in many ways in creation, and yet the apex, the pinnacle, the greatest point where God is displaying his glory is through mercy. As glorious as it is to see a sunset where God is displaying his majesty, it is more glorious when a sinner is transformed and has tasted his mercy. This is the pinnacle of his glory. And so God is worthy of your worship, first and foremost, because of his mercy toward you. We see this in verse 8. Let's look at this text together. The Apostle Paul, as Spirit inspires him, he says, Christ became a servant to the, uncir- to the circumcised. So he became a servant to circumcised. But what does that mean? Well, Jesus was born as the Jewish Messiah to those who were circumcised. So he was born Jewish. He is Messiah in order to save and to serve. It says be servant. So he came to serve his people. Why? He says in order, he says, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So we see here in verse 8 that God's word stands. That God cannot lie. So he keeps his promises. It says his truthfulness to confirm the promises. And so the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the hope of all nations, the coming of Jesus, the Savior, proves that God and his word are factual and that they're trustworthy. And so we do not doubt God's word. We do not question the authority of God's word. Yes, we can ask questions to better understand God's word, but we don't ever question the authority of God's word. It is true. And it is trustworthy. And the coming of Jesus proves it. Verse 9 says that God's purpose has always been to gather a people from all nations that will worship him together. It says in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So a Gentile was a non-Jew. And so in, in, in the ancient world and in the Jewish thinking, you had Jews and then you had everyone else. Non-Jews. And so the non-Jews were Gentiles. And so all the other nations 
This is what they were considered. And so God was gathering all the Gentiles, all other nations together to worship him. It says, in order the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So we see here again that God is worthy of your worship, your allegiance. He's worthy of your everything, first and foremost, because of his mercy. And we see this, there's four quotes of the Old Testament. One from um, Psalm 18, verse 49, Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Psalm 117, verse 1. The last one is out of Isaiah 11, verse 10. And so four different Old Testament quotes, and let's read those again to, to see this. So verse 9, God is saving in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles so this calling for all people to gather together to praise God, to worship Him for what He has done in salvation, praise Him for His mercy. And verse 12 is as powerful as it is beautiful. This promised Messiah, centuries before, Jesus was already promised, it was prophesied, that He would be a descendant of Jesse, it says here. Jesse was who? The father of King David from the tribe of Judah. And so there was a promise that the king who would rule over God's people from all nations for eternity would come from the line of Judah, specifically from the lineage of King David. And here you have the fulfillment of that is the son of David, Jesus, Messiah, who is ruling right now. He is our king. He is ruling in the hearts of his people from nations all across the planet. And one day when our king returns in full glory, he will defeat the enemy. He will resurrect the dead. He will resurrect this planet itself. And he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he will rule over the new heavens, the new earth, over all nations for eternity. And we will be among that number. And we have a taste of it right now, right here. When we praise him, together from different tribes and nations and tongues. And he is coming back to complete what he has already started. And so it says here that this powerful text is letting us see that our God has a promise to save people from all nations in order to be praised, to be worth, worshipped, to see more worth in him, more value in him. So we glorify God for his Mercy, it says in verse 9. So maybe you're sitting here, you're thinking, okay, it sounds like you've made the point. This is what the text is about. I understand this, Pastor Matthew, that the point of this text is that we are to worship God first and foremost because he has shown us mercy to save us as a collective group from all nations. Okay, that's great. Now can we go get some lunch now? No, there's more to be considered in order for us to think about how to apply this. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, how, how does this impact my life today? I'm glad you asked. 
because it's important for us to consider every text and what it means, not just for our future hope, but right here today in the here and the now. If you are seeing God and his beauty through the eyes of your heart, his eyes of faith, you will see the mercy of God. Let me give you two truths on the result of seeing the mercy of God. Number one, the result of seeing his mercy is that you will experience the mercy of God personally. So when you see it, when you see him, you will then personally experience the mercy of God. And the thing is, there's a big difference between intellectually or academically, mentally agreeing that God is merciful. Oh, yes, God is good. Yes, God is compassionate and God is loving. God is merciful. But to have these thoughts purely academically as a religious belief is very different from having actually personally tasted and experienced the mercy of God. And what prevents us? What are those barriers that usually prevent us from truly tasting the mercy of God? Self-centeredness. If you're taking notes, it's here on the screen. Self-centeredness is what prevents us from being able to truly taste the mercy of God. We can all try to hide it, to deny it, maybe lie to ourselves, but the truth is that every one of us has a maybe shockingly large capacity to be very self-centered. Every one of us does. And sometimes we surprise ourselves at how egotistical and self-absorbed we can actually be. And how we can care about our interests more than the needs of those around us. It's so subtle, but it's so real, and it is deadly to your soul. Self-centeredness takes on primarily two forms, and these are the barriers that will prevent you from tasting, enjoying, delighting in the mercy of God. The first form of being self-centered is having license. License, I'm talking about being very bad, breaking all the rules. I'm talking about having a, a license to sin freely. This is a very immoral lifestyle, which our world is more and more becoming this. This is the mentality, I'm going to live my life the way I want. There is no accountability. There is no God. And if there is one, he doesn't impact my life anyway. And so we can be believers but live practically like atheists where we forget that God is actually here. And so we live life according to our own agendas and we become very sinful. And so this is having this license and this, this mentality, this lifestyle is not tasting the mercy of God. But the other barrier to having God's mercy be really in us is legalism. So license but also legalism. This is being very good. This is keeping all the rules, but in the process, becoming self-righteous. This is trying to avoid sin and working really hard to a very moral lifestyle so that God will be impressed with you, so that God will then love you, so that God will then bless you and answer all of your prayers and give you the things that you want. And so you're trying to be good 
so you can then get what you want from God. And at its root, you are trusting in your own goodness. You're trusting in your ability, your power to be a good person. And so you're saying, I'm following Jesus so I can save myself versus following him so that he can save you. This is self-salvation. So some people take the religious route, license. Some take the non-religious route. Oh, I should say, I'm sorry, legalism is a religious route. License is the non-religious route. But it doesn't matter. At its root, whichever route you take, whichever form you take at its root, it's still self-centered. It is still a heart that's the same, that is far from God and that has not tasted the mercy of God. But since I'm speaking to a room full of people that are in the worship gathering, I'm not going to speak to those that want this free license to sin because most of them are asleep on Friday morning because they were out enjoying their free license Thursday night. So they're not going to be here on a Friday morning. So I'm going to speak to the Pharisees in the room, to the legalists, the ones that can be very religious and that we can think that through our goodness we can somehow achieve more or have God love us more. Can I be honest with you? Satan would rather you be a legalist than someone that has a free license to sin. Because it's more dangerous, it's more deadly, and we're more deceived. Why? Because you look good on the outside. The person that has the free license, they look terrible on the outside, but they don't care. They're lost, and they know it, and they're fine with it. They need Jesus too, clearly. But, but the person who looks good on the outside... Everyone's impressed with you and with your good behavior. You go to church on Fridays. But on the inside, filled with self-righteousness, looking down on other people. And you're never really sure if you're doing enough good to earn God's favor. And so where does it leave you? Miserable. It leaves you just absolutely miserable and making everyone around you equally miserable because you don't know how to deal with the darkness that's inside of you. And you don't know how to cope with your own evil desires that you wish weren't there. You want to deny them and pile up good works to pretend that they're not there. But the reality is that you can't deny that there is a hideousness inside of you when you look inside. And sin is not just doing bad things. It's far more than that. And you realize that you're doing bad things, but you want to maintain the appearance. But what you need is transformation. You need your heart to be completely transformed so that your motives in your heart will change. You need a Savior, not more religion. Both license and legalism are both self-centeredness. And both of these different forms fail to take into account the true meaning of sin. Because what is sin? Sin is breaking the laws of God. That's what sin is. Missing the mark of perfection. And so sin is breaking the laws 
of God. But sin, as we mentioned, is more than just doing bad things. Well, it is, but it's more than that. It's deeper and much more personal than that. You see, sin is always personal. All sin is directly against God. The first commandment of the, of the ten, the first one is what? To have no other gods before me. He doesn't say don't do bad things. The first commandment is you'll have no other gods before me. And so sin is so confusing at times and it so deceives us. But what sin is, it's making something more central in your life, something more central to your significance, to your purpose, to your happiness, other than God himself. And so God begins by saying, you'll have no other gods before me. I will fill you. I will satisfy you. I will define your existence, your purpose. You will, you will have your life wrapped around me and let, let me be your everything. You will worship, adore, humbly love me. No other gods besides me. When we find our worth in other things or ascribe worth to other things more than God, that is sin. And so at its root, Sin is wanting to be independent of God, trying to like, make sense of life apart from Him. And so we seek to find our meaning in things like family or career or our bank account or other relationships. But when we turn to anything other than God Himself, it leaves us deeply disappointed. And it leaves us enslaved. To sinful patterns because sin at its root is personal you see if you have a teenager I know people are on holiday a lot of our families are actually gone not a lot of teens in the room today but if you have a teenager who's being very disobedient and wants to go out or go to a party that mom said no you can't go to that party I know what's gonna happen that's not good for you and the teenager sneaks out to go to the party anyway and the mom says what are you doing? I told you, don't go to the party. And she, the daughter's like, well, it's not personal. I just want to go to the party. So I wasn't, like, it wasn't against you, mom, nothing personal. I just want to do what I want to do. Sin is always personal. That teenager doesn't realize it, but that was personal. And when we sin, it's personal. It's against God. Every single time. Read Psalm 51, King David's confession. After having committed adultery and murder, is sinning against his nation, against a man that he had murdered, against a wife, sinning against a lot of people. And yet King David says, against you and only you, O God, have I sinned. All sin is against a God who is holy, and we sin against others and ourselves, but God is the most offended person. So in order to experience the mercy of God, we must first believe that we are sinners who have offended God, who, yes, have broken the law and stand convicted, agreed, and yet it's deeper and more personal. We've offended God himself, and we deserve 
his judgment. We must believe this. We must first feel the weight of our sin before we can taste the overwhelming mercy of God. God's mercy means nothing if you don't believe that you're a sinner who is desperate for it. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus has come, and the good news that shows what? The gospel shows that you are deeply flawed. It shows that we are so flawed. And yet the gospel also shows us that we are deeply loved. Treasured. You see, when we understand the gospel, it produces two things. One, it produces great humility. We're humble because we know how much we don't deserve it. And yet, it gives us confidence because God loves us so much that Jesus considered it worth dying for you. This should fill you with confidence and yet keep you humble. This is what the gospel does. And when we live this way, it displays his glory. And we can't earn it but we graciously receive it, and we are changed by the mercy of God. So what will your life look like? Like, seriously, if you have really tasted God's mercy, what will your life look like? It says it in verse 13. We just read a little while ago. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is a powerful verse. We could have done a whole sermon on just this one verse, but we'll take just a few minutes. This verse here, verse 13 in Romans 15, gives us a progression. It shows us the implications of having tasted this mercy of God. It's powerful. So it says that in believing, so even though it's mid-sentence, the starting point here is trust. So the word for faith, belief, trust, it's the same word in the original. And so, experiencing God's mercy personally, it, it starts with trusting Jesus. This is the starting point. If you want to really live a life where you are experiencing his mercy and you have transformation, you have to trust him. Experiencing his presence as you pray, you read his word, as you cry out to him and pour your heart out to him and stop lying to yourself about your struggles but be honest with your God about them and say God I'm hurting this is hard but I trust you because you are good and you are faithful and just pouring our hearts out to him and entrusting our souls to him really resting in him this is a starting point trusting so as he says in believing so he says in believing what he says may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So when you believe, you trust, you are then filled with joy and peace. And so here's the progression. So it begins with trusting leads to God filling you with joy and peace. So the starting point is you trust God because he is faithful and true. And you trust him, you, you rest in him, and then what happens is the Spirit then fills you with joy and peace. But we have to be aware of our sin. If we're not, then we won't need to trust Him. And it won't lead to joy 
and peace. And so if you're lacking, so in your life today, if you are lacking joy and peace, it means that you are not trusting, you're not depending upon God, not, not really, and that you haven't really tasted his mercy. So this is what it looks like. He fills us with joy and peace. In the middle of uncertainty, we have peace. And he says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So then it results in hope. And so this is, this is the progression. This is what our lives should look like. We see God's glory. We delight in it. We trust him. He fills us with joy and peace in the middle of all of life's stuff. And then that results in hope. But it says that the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, you have hope. So it's not in yourself. It's not in your power, your ability, your intelligence. No, no, no. This is in the Spirit's power as you rest in Him. And so if, you, if you're lacking in hope, it's because your life is not marked by joy and peace. And that's because you're not trusting, because you're not tasting His mercy. So it goes back to the beginning on seeing and feeling the weight of your sin and recognizing the glory of God to save you. And then you trust him. And then he gives you joy and peace. And then you live with an unshakable hope no matter what is going on. You run back to the cross. You run back to the cross every single day. And you feel the weight of your sin, and yet you equally feel the weight of God's mercy. And you repent afresh, and you experience his mercy and his love afresh. You know, believing this gospel is not just the starting point. It's how you continue to follow Jesus. I've had times in my life where I had been so blind and I didn't even realize it. And God is merciful to open my eyes where I see unhealthy patterns of living. And it is incredible when our eyes are open and we trust him, we repent. He does fill us with joy and peace. And we do have hope for continued change and healing. And it can be so profound at times where you feel like you've been born again all over again. You haven't because you were justified when you first came to faith. But sanctification can be so profound at times that it feels like, I didn't even know Jesus before. Like compared to this, intimacy and joy and peace, it's like I didn't even know what it was like. And he keeps doing this as we go deeper and deeper into love, into knowing him and experiencing his presence. But it has to be a daily thing. And so the mercy of God, we find hope in our struggles, and we find healing in our pain and peace in our uncertainty and joy even in our disappointment. When and only when we are tasting of the mercy of God. So we must experience it. But secondly, is the result of seeing the mercy of God is we extend mercy to others. And so we experience it, and then we extend it. So how do you glorify God for his mercy? Like it says in verse 9, you reflect it. You, you display it by sharing, by extending mercy to other people. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So be kind 
and compassionate and forgive because God's forgiven you. So if you need to show mercy to someone, it assumes something. They hurt you. When someone hurts you, what is the natural response that all of us at any age, from two-year-olds all the way up to adults, what is the natural response when, when someone hurts you? You want to pay them back. They hit you, you want to hit them back. They rob me, you want to rob them back. They talk bad about you, you want to talk bad about them. I mean, this is just natural. This is the normal human experience is when someone hurts you, we want payback. We want them to feel the same pain that we felt. And there's lots of ways that, that we do this. Like, we suffer, we want them to suffer. How do we do it? We can say vicious things that will hurt them. We can ignore them, block them out of our life. Or we can slander or gossip, speak poorly to other people. We can try to control or manipulate them. There's lots of ways that we can hurt people. And you know what? Sadly, it brings fleeting, short, but it does bring a measure of, of joy and satisfaction. There is. Because what happens is we feel the satisfaction over seeing them pay off their debt. They hurt me. I'm making them not pay for it. So they're paying off the debt they owe. And it brings a fleeting pleasure. But it leads to a cycle of payback, then payback. They pay back, you pay them back. And it leads to this cycle being vicious, sometimes for years. But what it does is it leaves us cold and wallowing in self-pity and even more self-absorbed because we're focusing on how much we've been hurt. Now there's another option. We can forgive. Forgiving means refusing to make the other person pay for what they did. Hear me. Forgiving is refusing to let the other person pay for what they did. And so true forgiveness, let's be honest, it's painful. Forgiving is painful. Because first you suffered what they did to you. Whatever it was, they hurt you, so that already hurts. And now you can't even get the joy of hurting them back. Like you're giving up that pleasure of seeing them suffer. And so when you are forgiving, you know what you're doing? You're absorbing the debt. You are paying for what they did. You are taking on the cost of that sin. And it's painful. And many people don't want to do it. And they choose not to forgive they withhold forgiveness because they're not going to suffer and feel pain and pay for what the other person did. And so what does it result in long term? Bitterness. When we don't forgive, it leads to us being bitter. And here's the sad thing. There is pain associated with forgiving, but the pain of not forgiving and of harboring that anger and of becoming bitter, that pain is actually greater than the initial pain of, of forgiveness because forgiveness leads to peace and leads to freedom. 
and the pain eventually got healing in it. But when we hold on to that, there's no healing. We must at times go and confront people who have hurt us. And this is good to go reconcile with someone who has hurt you. And yet, you must honestly forgive that person before you confront them. You know, the one that, that hurts you, that you're angry at? You must forgive that person before you confront them. Because it's the only way that you can approach that person with self-control, with wisdom, with grace. You must give up the desire to see that other person hurt before you can go and talk to them. It's the only way that you're going to have true change and healing and reconciliation. It's the only way. We forgive because God's forgiven us. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. God delights in showing mercy. He loves it, and his heart is to forgive. So a heart that will not forgive, hear me, a heart that will not forgive, that will not extend mercy, is a heart that has not tasted mercy. You can't give what you don't have. You can't teach what you don't know. Unless you have first tasted of the mercy of God, you cannot extend it. When we forgive, we are displaying the gospel. We're reflecting the very glory of God because Jesus absorbed our sin on the cross. And so we now forgive because God has forgiven So to whom this week do you need to go speak to, to reconcile with? Who are you harboring anger towards that it's doing nothing but leaving you bitter and cold and far from God and unable to experience the healing that you are so hungry for? Who must you go speak to this week that you can go to this person who hurt you so badly and say, I forgive you because God's forgiven me, and I've tasted of his mercy, and I'm going to extend it to you. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is a way that we express it. They don't deserve your forgiveness, but then again, you don't deserve God's either. It's not about deserving. It's about displaying the glory of God. God is worthy of your worship first and foremost because of his mercy. Is your life marked by, we saw verse 13, trust, joy, peace, and hope? This is the evidence that you have been drinking deeply of God's mercy. And this is the purpose of God. The purpose of God is to save a people from every nation radically transform them so that they will then glorify him for his mercy. May that be ECC of Ireland. May we do it together for his glory. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled this morning that we could know you, sing to you, praise you, hear your word, and be challenged and encouraged from your word to follow you and to display your character As we have considered today, your mercy, you have shown us so much mercy with your son dying on the cross for us. And it's our heart's desire to reflect that to those in our world. 
So thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who gives us hope. May we walk with you and trust you and reflect your beauty to the nations. We pray it for your sake, in the name of our first love, Jesus. Amen.